take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, as we look at this last little story of John chapter 4, I think I assured you a month ago we would get through John chapter 5 by the end of the year. That's not going to happen. But I got through John chapter 4, which is great, so excited about that. You may remember the story after King David stole another man's wife. And then killed her husband in order to conceal his sin. God sent a prophet by the name of Nathan to confront him. As strange as it might seem, it doesn't appear that King David at this moment was fully aware of what he had done and how bad it was. But it's interesting the way in which Nathan chose to reveal this to David. He could have been certainly more direct, but he chose an unusual way by telling David a story. Nathan came to David and said, David, I need to tell you a story about two men in our kingdom. There is a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has innumerable cattle and sheep. The poor man has one sheep that he loves. He went and bought this sheep, which is a great sacrifice for him because he was poor. He brought that sheep home, and that sheep has become a part of his family. The sheep even feeds from the table with the family. Nathan actually says, David, this man treated the sheep and loved the sheep like his own daughter. Now, the rich man had some company come into town, and he needed to feed him something. And so he decided he would slaughter an animal in order to feed his company, and he walked out of his house and walked past his hundreds and thousands of sheep and went to the poor man's house and took his sheep and killed his sheep and ate it. David was enraged. As the king of the kingdom, he was absolutely furious. It says that anger kindled up in his heart and he said, this man must pay for what he has done. He must not only be punished, he must pay fourfold for what he's done. And then David said this, let this man who has done this, this rich man, have no pity. And Nathan looked at David and said, you are that man. And it wasn't until he saw his own sin through that story that David said, now I know that I have sinned. Isn't it strange how easy it is for us to see other people's sin? Isn't it amazing how easy it is for us to, to talk about other people's sin? Not only to see it, but to notice it and to confront it. We love to point out other people's sin. We love to talk about other people's sin. And isn't it equally amazing how difficult it is for us to see our own? How difficult it is for us to acknowledge our own sin. Jesus was right in Matthew 7, 3 when he said, You see the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, but you do not see the plank in your own eye. And all of us have this problem. We all have a tendency to be very good by seeing the shortcomings, the sins of anyone else around us, particularly those closest to us, but being completely unable to see our own. And so sometimes the Lord, in his kindness, in order to help us to see something we don't see, will tell us a story. A story about someone else that will help us to understand our own sin. This morning, we come to what seems like a very simple and routine gospel story. 
By routine, I mean Jesus dramatically heals someone who's about to die. So not routine, but routine for Jesus. And what I mean by that is if we had been reading through the New Testament and we had read Matthew and Mark and Luke and come to John, we would not be shocked by this story. It is a story that is not repeated in another gospel. This is a unique story, but something like it has happened multiple times. So it's not surprising. What is surprising is that John has put it here. You see, everything in John so far has been unique, and John doesn't repeat many things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke say. And yet here, it seems that he gives a story that doesn't fit. After these incredible moments of turning the water into wine, which no one else talks about, and the story with Nicodemus, and the woman at the well, all of this is unique material. And one thing we have learned about John is that John is very calculated in the way he writes, and every single thing builds upon the previous thing. So it would be impossible for us to understand what Jesus did in the temple in John 2 if we did not understand who Jesus was in John 1. And we could have never understood fully the story of Nicodemus in chapter 3 if we did not understand chapter 2. And it would be impossible for us to understand the woman of Samaria in John 4 if we did not see her in light of Nicodemus in chapter 3. And so every single thing John does, he does for a very specific reason, and it's all building to make his case. Ultimately, the case of John 20, 31, these things I have written that you might believe and in believing have life. And so when I got to the end of John 4, I couldn't understand why the story was here. It's just too familiar It doesn't seem to make sense. I don't know how this is building on what everything previously was saying. Then I begin to think that maybe, like the story of Nathan, this story is here to show us something about ourselves that we might not see otherwise. The story really begins in chapter 4, verse 3. When it says that Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And we've spent three weeks talking about that. Jesus was going from Judea back to his hometown of Galilee. And he went through Samaria. It says he had to go through Samaria, not geographically, but because he had a divine appointment there. It was there in which he met this woman at the well. And it was there in which through this conversation, she began to open her heart up to Jesus. She ran back into her town and invited all the town to come back. And all of a sudden we see this incredibly miraculous work that has happened in Samaria. It's recorded for us in verses 39 through 42. Look at that. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. It's incredible. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. This is incredible. Jesus has not received this reception from anyone else except here in Samaria. They declare after hearing his word, we believe this is the savior of the world. And all of a sudden, as we saw last week, this woman becomes an example for the disciples. This despised woman, despised by the Jews because she's Samaritan, despised by her own people because of her immorality, is now the one Jesus is using to say to his disciples, be more like this woman. Because without any reservation, she goes and she gathers people from her city and she invites them to Christ and they come to him and then they begin to believe. And then all of a sudden this town becomes a picture of something we haven't seen yet. This town becomes a picture of true belief. 
There is no question that they truly believe. They come to the end and say, we believe because we have heard the word of God that this is in fact the savior of the world. It is an amazing moment and a wonderful picture of what it's like for a people to really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the story continues in our text for today in verse 43. It says, after two days, the two days he spent there, he departed for Galilee. He's going back home. And then there's this statement of verse 44 in parentheses that also seems a bit out of place. But, but listen, as we're trying to understand why this text is here, this statement like this in parentheses we know is going to be a massive clue. This is going to be a huge clue to help us to understand what Jesus wants us to see here. And it says this, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. What that means is this. Jesus is really not excited about going home after he saw what happened in Samaria. No one would be. I mean, he just spent two days in a place where hundreds of people got saved and this woman had this miraculous testimony and she was delivered. And for any of us, but for someone in ministry, man, you stop in a town for two days and a whole town gets saved. That's good stuff. And Jesus doesn't want to leave that to go home where he knows he doesn't have any honor where he knows that he's not going to be received. How does he know that? Because he's never been received well there. And he says that, that no prophet is giving honor in his hometown. And so the feel we have here is Jesus very encouraged by what he saw in Samaria, but very aware that what he's about to experience is not the same welcome. And so he's not incredibly excited to, to go back. As John 1.11 says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. There's something very heartbreaking about seeing those who aren't his own, his own, his own people, receive him. And yet going back to his own people, those who had waited so long for a Messiah, reject him. It's heartbreaking to leave Samaria and go to those Jews who would never, it seems, say what the Samaritans said. This is the Savior of the world. And so he's not excited really about going back, but he has to go back. And he's already said that he doesn't receive honor. And then verse 45 seems even stranger when it says this. So when he came to Galilee, the Galilees welcomed him. Well, that doesn't seem to fit with verse 44. Where it says that Jesus knows that he's not going to get honor in his hometown. But yet all of a sudden it says that he's welcomed him. So, so what is it? Is he welcomed or is he not welcomed? Well, the answer is in the following part of verse 45. Why did they welcome him? So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Here it is. This is key. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. In other words, they did welcome him, but not because they were excited about him, but because they were excited about his works. They didn't love him. They didn't want him. They really weren't that interested in him, but they were super excited about the things that they had seen him do. So what John wants us to understand is Jesus is, is really not excited about going back because he knows he's not going to be welcomed. But yet when he comes, everybody's excited to see him, but Jesus sees through that excitement because they're really not excited to see him. They're excited to see his words. And the truth is that kind of welcome is actually a rejection. 
just imagine you get invited to a Christmas party and it's a Christmas party that happens every year and you've never been invited and you felt really bad because you've never been invited and all of a sudden this year for the first time you get invited to the Christmas party and it's a big deal and the, the person that hosts the party actually calls you and says, I can't believe you've never been invited before. I love you and, and I can't wait for you to come. It would be an honor for us to have you. I, I can't even know how we would have this party without you. It would be so special if you came and so you get all dressed up and you go. And as you're walking around, you're seeing other people and you overhear the host talking to someone else and she mentions your name. And so you get a little closer and you think, well, she's talking. And so you just kind of go over a little bit and try to hear what she says. And you hear that what she says is this, you know, I invited old so-and-so and they said, why? Well, she's never been invited before. Well, yeah, but she makes that cheese ball with the nuts on top and no one else ever makes that. No one makes that. I love that thing. I, this is the illustration for the day because I can't stop thinking about that. You know that, that one with the, with the pecans on top and you put it on, it's, it's delicious. No one seems to make that anymore. And so all of a sudden this woman realizes that the only reason she got invited is because she's known for making this and no one makes it as good as her. And all of a sudden this thing that felt like being accepted now feels like a greater rejection. It would actually be less of a rejection to not get invited to the party than to get invited to the party, but to know you were just being used at the party. And that's exactly what Jesus feels. Like that which feels like acceptance is actually greater rejection. Jesus, we don't love you. We don't care about you. But we're super excited to see the great things that you're going to do again. And so what's happening is Jesus is saying, I don't think you're glad to see me. I think you're just glad to see what I can do for you. And that idea is kind of lingering there in the air. And that's when we realize what Jesus is saying is that there's no honor in his hometown. And yet he's welcomed, but not because of who he is. You know how everything builds on something else in John? If you look at John 2, 23 through 25, you'll see exactly what's happening here. In John 2, at the very end there, Jesus had cleansed the temple and it said this. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Praise God, people believe in Jesus. But Jesus on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. What that means is this. There is a type of believing that's not really believing. You hear that? And there are people who believed in Jesus, but Jesus who knows our hearts and knows exactly if we have true faith or not, did not entrust himself to these people because they had a form of belief that really was not belief. So what's happening in chapter four is this. There is not only a type of belief that's not belief, there's a type of welcoming that's not really welcoming. They're not welcoming at Jesus because they love him and they want him and they think he's the savior of the world and they need a savior. They're welcoming him because they have seen the works that he's done and that's what they want to see again. And Jesus walks into the town and sees right through every bit of it. He sees through their applause. He sees through the crowds. He sees through their excitement because he knows their heart is not for him but just what they think he can do. And it is all of that that helps us to see exactly why this story is here. It tells us in verse 46, he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Feel the weight of verse 47. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son for his son was at the point of death. So here is an official who has power and wealth and connections, everything at his disposal, yet he could not save his son. And he was desperate. 
And so he took this 25 mile walk going 1300 feet up in elevation all because he heard that Jesus was coming back into town and, and he had heard the things that Jesus could do and the only hope that he had of saving his son is if Jesus somehow would come with him back the other 25 miles and back down the 1300 feet elevation and, and touch his son. And so in desperation, he comes to see Jesus. It's an incredibly arduous journey, but, but I'd do it and you'd do it. Like, what would we not do for a child that was sick? What would we not do to save a child if we thought we could save him? If we thought there was a hope or someone that could miraculously heal him, we would travel any distance to do it. And so this man, who had always been able to get everything he wanted, found something he couldn't take care of in his own strength. And so he went to Jesus. And the weight of the story is really there in a little word in verse 47 where it says, and he asked him to come down and heal his son. The word ask really is a word better translated to beg. He's begging Jesus to save. He's humbling himself, this powerful man. This is a sense of desperation. It's very dramatic. And everything about this story is heartbreaking. I mean, the one thing I thought about is this, that little, that little statement, when he left home, his son was at the point of death. What that means is that after the 25 miles, his son would be closer to death and he doesn't even know if this point of his son's alive or not. When he gets back, if Jesus agrees and Jesus comes with him, that's another 25 miles, maybe another couple of days where certainly the boy that was at the point of death is no longer alive anymore. And so you feel his desperation as he runs to Jesus and he just says, Jesus, I'm begging you, come down to my house. My son is about to die. He may already be gone. Would you please come with me? And we just, we kind of read this in light of, of the story of Jesus turning water into wine. Do you remember Jesus didn't want to do this, his mother wanted him to do it, and then he did it, and we asked the question, why did Jesus do this? And the answer was really this, Jesus turned the water into wine because he wanted to spare this family from the shame and disgrace of running out of wine. And so think about this, if Jesus cares about a host family not running out of wine, and he doesn't want them to be embarrassed by running out of wine, how much more would Jesus feel the shame and the weight of this man and heal his son? If he cared about wine in a party, wouldn't he care about a child that's about to die? And you say, we know Jesus by now. We've been through four chapters. Absolutely, Jesus loves children. This is something he would do. I think it's that that makes his response so shocking. Look at what he says. This man comes and begs for Jesus to come down and heal his son. And he's at the point of death. And Jesus looks at him and says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That you there is plural. So what he's saying is this. You people are all the same. You don't care about me. You don't want me. You just want me to do things for you. Now, that feels extra harsh as a response. Like, it's not a, you know, I don't think I can come. You people are all the same. You don't want me. You just, you just want the miracles I can do. And you, just, you do not see this response coming. But why does Jesus respond that way? Because he sees the man's heart. And he's not just broken by the man's heart. He's broken by what the man represents. This man represents all of those in Galilee who don't care about Jesus. They just care about themselves. And they're trying to use Jesus to get what they want. 
And here all of a sudden this man is this representative of what we've already been clued into, which is true about the Galileans, which they're not going to honor Jesus. They welcome him, but it's not a true welcome. They may believe, but it's not a true believe because Jesus' heart is broken because he sees that this man is missing the greater point. This man did not want him. He didn't care about him. He didn't want a savior. He was not going to declare, you're the savior of the world like the Samaritans did. He just wanted a miracle. And what Jesus knows is that these people's faith cannot exist without the extras and the props. They have a form of faith that is not going to be sustained unless they keep getting the things they ask for. It's belief without belief. It is using Jesus to meet your needs but not having any really love affection for Jesus. It is going to Jesus when you need something, but not caring about Jesus as any other time. And so what Jesus knows is this, this man's son might be healed, but the entire family would be lost. And what does it gain to, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? So Jesus looks at this man and he says, I know you want your son healed, but you're gonna go home and he's gonna get healed and you're all gonna die and go to hell. Because you don't care about me. You just want a miracle. Before we think Jesus is totally heartless, look at what he says in verse 49. It says, the official said to him, and I just have to believe, I, you know how important it is to me to, to kind of put ourselves in this text, that the man just looks at Jesus and says, sir, just come down before my child dies. Like, I don't, I don't really want your sermon right now. I, would, you just, would you just come with me? Come with me before my son dies. To which Jesus responds, go, verse 50, your son will live. Now, this is a huge moment for this man. Because twice he has requested the same thing. Come down with me. Come with me so my son will live. There is power in you. And so I know that if you'll touch my son, he can live. But, but I need you to come with me twice. Come down with me. Come down the 25 miles, the 1,300 feet in elevation. Come with me. Come down. But Jesus doesn't do it. He just says, go, your son will live. Now, the question here is, how is this man going to respond to that? He could say, Jesus, I appreciate that, but I need you to come with me. I asked twice, come with me, come with me. Here's the turning point in this man's life. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servant met him and told him that his son was recovering. <laughs> so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Look at verse 43. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said, your son will live. And he believed. And all of his household. So the man goes home and he gets met on the way and say, hey, your son is better. Well, what time did this happen? It happened at the seventh hour. Well, that was exactly the time in which Jesus said this. And so all of a sudden, the man began to believe. And not only did he believe, his entire household believed. So not only was his son saved, more importantly, his soul was saved. Not only was his son saved from death to life, this man was saved from death to life. This man did not begin with, with the right kind of faith, but he ended with the right kind of faith. Do you see that? His, his belief at the beginning was belief, but not real belief. At the end, he seems to have real belief. And so why is this man here? What does this represent? This man represents two things. He represents the Galileans 
who want to use Jesus but don't believe in Jesus. And then he represents the Samaritans who believed the word of Jesus and were saved. You see that? We could have never gotten this out of that story if we didn't know what came first. He represents both. He comes to Jesus as a Galilean who doesn't care about Jesus. He just wants what he wants. And he asks Jesus like a genie in a bottle. Jesus, would you come give me what he wants? Jesus does it. The man goes back home. And at the end of the story, he's now like a Samaritan who believed the word of God and has been saved. He now has life and his son has life as well. And that's why the story's here. The story's here to show us the difference between a true belief and a false belief, a true welcoming of Jesus and a false welcoming of Jesus. It's here to move us from one to the other. It's here before we go any further to be used as a story like Nathan uses his story for us to be our, see ourselves in this story and to ask ourselves the legitimate question, do we have true belief? Do we have a true welcoming of Jesus? Do we just have enough belief that kind of fools everyone around us, but it does not fool Jesus? Because there is a belief that's not belief, and there's a welcome that's not welcome. And listen to me carefully. It's massively prevalent in our day. It's part of our southern culture. And it's scary because it's normalized, and the consequences are eternal. What I mean is this. It's normal to be surrounded by people who just have a little bit of Jesus, enough to make everyone around them think that they're okay. But open them up. There's no love for Jesus. There's no time in his word. There's no pursuit of him. There's no desire for him. You have fooled everyone around you, but you have not fooled Jesus and because that's so normal and the consequences are so dramatically eternal, it seems very important in a culture like ours for us to have a story like this that might be a little bit of a mirror to look at ourselves and say, are we like the Galileans or the Samaritans? I thought this week about a quote that I want to read for you from David Wells, a professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. I almost didn't. It, it, it's dense, okay? I need you to just take a sip of coffee right now, everybody, if you have it. I need you to listen to this, all right? I need you to look at me for just a minute. I need you to really listen to what he says. Writing about Christianity in our American culture, he says this. We have turned to a God that we can use rather than a God we must obey. We have turned to a God who will fulfill our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights to ourselves. He is a God for us, for our satisfaction, not because we have learned to think of him in this way through Christ, but because we have learned to think of him this way through the marketplace. In the marketplace, everything is for us. It's for our pleasure. It's for our satisfaction. And we have come to assume that it must be the same in the church as well. And so we transformed the God of mercy into a God who is at our mercy. We imagine that he is benign, powerless. That he will acquiesce as we toy with his reality and co-opt him in the promotion of our ventures and careers. Meaning, we've just assumed that he comes along with us in our plans, in our career, and our ventures. And if the sunshine of his benign grace fails to warm us as we expect. If he fails to shower prosperity and success on us. We will find ourselves unable to believe in him anymore. This is the parable of the soils. It is those who come to Jesus for a moment, 
but drift away. Why? Because they didn't really ever come to Jesus. And there is in our day a type of welcoming of Jesus that is like those in Galilee. It is so common in our day that it might be hard for us to see. And could it be that God has put this story right here before we go any further in John to help us to ask the question, are we like the Samaritans or are we like the Galileans? Do you realize the seriousness of this? How easy it is to have just enough of Jesus so everybody thinks you're fine, but deep inside of your heart, there's really not much there. And so finally, I think the Lord allowed me to see the reason this story was here. But then the next part of it is, well, how do I make sure that nobody in our church is a Galilean? Because they're in the room. How do I make sure I'm not a Galilean? And so I just want to close by telling you the difference in between these two. The first thing is this, it is familiarity versus astonishment. Familiarity versus astonishment. Why did Jesus even do the miracle? (laughs) Because Jesus wanted this man to be astonished. He wanted him to be in awe. He wanted him to be amazed. He wanted him, John 1, 14, to behold his glory. He wanted to fight that casual familiarity of Jesus. You see, the problem in Galilee is this, listen carefully. The problem in Galilee is they grew up with Jesus. And because they grew up with Jesus, he was just normal and he wasn't anything special. You say, what does that have to do with me? We grew up with Jesus too. We grew up with Jesus. Most of us grew up with Jesus. He's just kind of part of life and culture and our family talked about him. And what do you do? You just believe in Jesus and you you do what Jesus said. Like we, he's just, we grew up with him. And so our temptation is just to be so familiar with Jesus that we're no longer in awe of him. We're no longer amazed by him. What happened in this man's life is that he saw what we rarely see, and that is the greatness and holiness and power of God. He saw that this is not a genie who just does me favors. This is the creator and sustainer of the world. And he is not a God to be used. He is a God to be worshiped and taken seriously. He is not a God to be used. He demands our allegiance and our obedience and our worship and our adoration and our time and our priority. Do we go to him every time we have a need? Absolutely. But do you also go to him when you don't have a need? That's the question. Familiarity versus astonishment. There is also words versus works. Jesus did no miracles in Samaria. It was a revival based upon the word of God. That's the significance of verses 39 and through 42. It says, many Samaritans believed the testimony. Many more believed because of his word. They believed because of what they had heard for themselves. They made the declaration that Jesus is Savior because they heard and believed the word of God. Yet, in Galilee, they did not care about the word of God. They only wanted the works of God. And you see the transition in this man's life in verse 50 is this. He came to Jesus just wanting the works. He left Jesus believing the word. He believed the word is what it says in verse 50. So here would be the question for us. What role does the word of God play in your life? Because listen, listen carefully. If the word plays no role in your life, but you're simply there for the works, It would seem to expose that what you want is not really Jesus. You just want the favors. Right? 
If, if there is no time in the word of God, if there is no desire for the word of God, if there is no submission to the word of God, it would seem to indicate that a personal relationship with Jesus is not really your interest, but you are interested in Jesus being there when you need him for something. Do we need him? Yes. But the greatest treasure is not the things he gives us. The greatest treasure is himself. He's the prize. He's the treasure. He's what we want. And if his word has no role in our lives, it would reveal to us we are Galileans familiar with Jesus who want him to help us when we need him, but who do not really have any other desire to get close to him. And that's a problem. The final one is this. It is control versus submission. The Galileans wanted a God they could control, a God who did what he needed to do when they needed him to do it, and then when he failed to do it, they lost Trust in the Lord. Why? Because they just needed a God who stepped in when they need him. But what's different about this man is at the very end of the story, he responds in total submission. He recognized that he, like his son, also needed life. He needed a savior. And so it says that the father knew the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in his whole household. He saw that his entire family needed life, that all of them were actually dying. And he finally saw this. Like a Samaritan, he finally saw, I see who Jesus really is, and I give my entire life to him. So think about this. If John's whole goal is John 20, 31, that you may believe and have life, have we seen a better example yet than a man who believed and found life? This is it. And we see him contrasted to this generation of Galileans who are so familiar with Jesus that they have no worship of him and they've never really submitted their life to him. They just want a genie. They don't want a savior. And here is a man who started that way but ended up as someone who truly believed in the Lord, submitted his life to him and came to experience something internally real. Not enough Jesus to fool your family, but enough Jesus to give you real and lasting life. That's why it's here. And I was thinking this week how much I wished in my carnal flesh at the Christmas season I could give you a more sentimental, sweet Christmas sermon. But that's not what the Lord brought us to. The Lord brought us to a story to help us to see ourselves and to ask ourselves a question, what kind of belief do we really have? So that hopefully you would come to find the real life that Jesus offers. Not being satisfied with fooling those around you but knowing the real life of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.